Chapter Eight of the Moon Maid by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter Eight: A Fight with a Torho. Naila and I passed through the village of the Novans undetected, since the people of Gavago were cowering in their huts, terror-stricken by the storm. The girl led me immediately to high ground and upward along a barren ridge, toward the high mountains in the distance. I could see that she was afraid, though she tried to hide it from me, putting on a brave front that I was sure she was far from feeling. My respect for her increased, as I have always respected courage, and I believe that it requires the highest courage to do that which fills one with fear. The man who performs heroic acts without fear is less brave than he who overcomes his cowardice. Realizing her fear, I retained her hand in mine that the contact might impart to her a little of the confidence that I felt, now that I was temporarily at least out of the clutches of the Vagas. We had reached the ridge above the village, when the thought that we were weaponless and without means of protection overwhelmed me. I had been in so much of a hurry to escape the village that I had overlooked this very vital consideration. I spoke to Naila about it, telling her that I had best return to the village and make an effort to regain possession of my own weapons and ammunition. She tried to dissuade me, telling me that such an attempt was foredoomed to failure, and prophesying that I would be recaptured. But we cannot cross this savage world of yours, Naila, without means of protection, I urged. We do not know at what minute some fierce creature may confront us. Think how helpless we shall be without weapons with which to defend ourselves. There are only the Vagas, she said, to fear in this part of Vana. We know no other dangerous beast except the Torho. They are seldom seen. Against the Vagas, your weapons would be useless, as you already have discovered. The risk of meeting a Torho is infinitely less than that which you will incur if you attempt to enter Gavago's hut to secure your weapons. You simply could not do it and escape, for doubtless the dwelling of the chief is crowded with warriors. I was compelled finally to admit the wisdom of her reasoning, and to forgo an attempt to secure my rifle and pistol, though I can assure you that I felt lost without them, especially when thus venturing forth into a new world so strange to me as Vana, and so savage. As a matter of fact, from what I gleaned from Naila, there was but a single spot upon the entire inner lunar world where she and I could hope to be even reasonably free from danger, and that was her native city of Lathe. Even there I should have enemies, she told me, for her race is ever suspicious of strangers. But the friendship of the princess would be my protection, she assured me with a friendly pressure of the hand. The rain and wind must have persisted for a considerable time, for when it was finally over and we looked back through a clear atmosphere, we found that a low range of mountains lay between us and the distant sea. We had crossed these and were upon a plateau at the foot of the higher peaks. The sea looked very far away indeed, and we could not even guess at the location of the Novans' village from which we had escaped. Do you think they will pursue us? I asked her. Yes, she said, they will try to find us but it will be like looking for a raindrop in the ocean. They are creatures of the lowlands. I am of the mountains. Down there, and she pointed into the valley, they might find me easily. But in my own mountains? No. 
We are near Lathe? I asked. I do not know. Lathe is hard to find. It is well hidden. It is for this reason that it exists at all. Its founders were pursued by the Kalkars, and had they not found an almost inaccessible spot, they would have been discovered and slain long before they could have constructed an impregnable city. She led me then straight into the mighty mountains of the moon, past the mouths of huge craters that reached through the lunar crust to the surface of the satellite, along the edges of yawning chasms that dropped three, four, yes, sometimes five miles, sheer into frightful gorges, and then out upon vast plateaus, but ever upward toward the higher peaks that seemed to topple above us in the distance. The craters, as a rule, lay in the deep gorges, but some we found upon the plateaus, and even a few opened into the summits of mountain peaks, as do those upon the outer surface of planets. Those in the low places were, I believe, the openings through which the original molten lunar core was vomited forth by the surface volcanoes upon the outer crust. Nahila told me that the secret entrance to Lave lay just below the lip of one of these craters, and it was this she sought. To me the quest seemed hopeless, for as far as the eye could reach lay naught but an indescribable jumble of jagged peaks, terrific gorges, and bottomless craters. Yet always the girl seemed to find a way among or about them. Instinctively, apparently, she found trails and footholds where there were no trails, and where a chamois might have been hard put to it to find secure footing. In these higher altitudes we found a vegetation that differed materially from that which grew in the lowlands. Edible fruits and berries were, however, still sufficiently plentiful to keep us reasonably well supplied with food. When we were tired, we usually managed to find a cave in which we could rest in comparative security. And when it was possible to do so, Naila always insisted upon barricading the entrance with rocks, since there was always the danger, she told me, of our being attacked by Torhoes. These bloodthirsty creatures, while rare, were nevertheless very much to be feared, since not only were they voracious meat-eaters and of such a savage disposition that they attacked nearly everything they saw in wanton ferocity, but even a minor wound inflicted by their fangs or talons often proved fatal because of the fact that their principal diet was the poisonous flesh of the rymph and the flying toad. I tried to get Naila to describe the creature to me, but inasmuch as there was no creature with which we were both familiar that she might compare it with, I learned little more from her than that it stood between eighteen inches and two feet in height, had long, sharp fangs, four legs, and was hairless. As an aid to climbing, as well as to give me some means of protection, I broke a stout and rather heavy branch from one of the mountain trees, the wood of which was harder than any that I had seen growing in the lowlands. To roam a strange and savage world armed only with a wooden stick seemed to me the height of rashness, but there was no alternative until the time arrived when I might find the materials with which to fashion more formidable weapons. I had in mind a bow and arrows, and was constantly on the lookout for wood which I considered adapted to the former, and I also determined to forego my cane for a spear whenever that material for the making of one came to hand. 
I had little time, however, for such things, as it seemed that when we were not sleeping we were constantly on the move, Nyla becoming more and more impatient to find her native city, as the chances for doing so lessened, and it seemed to me that they were constantly lessening. While I was quite sure that she had no more idea where Laith lay than I, yet we stumbled on and on and on through the most stupendous mountain ranges that the mind of man can conceive, nor ever apparently did Noila discover a single familiar landmark upon which to hang a shred of hope that eventually we might come upon Laith. I never saw such a sanguine and hopeful person as Noila. It was her constant belief that Laith lay just beyond the next mountain, in spite of the fact that she was invariably mistaken, which seemed never to lessen the exuberance of her enthusiasm for the next guess, which I knew beforehand was going to be a wrong guess. Once, just after we had rounded the shoulder of a mountain, we came upon a little strip of level land clinging precariously to the side of a perpendicular cliff. And so I stood there waiting, my feeble stick grasped in both hands. Just what I expected to do with it I scarcely knew, until the side of a mighty peak. I was in the lead, a position which I tried always to take when it was not absolutely necessary for Naila to go ahead in order to find a trail. As I came around the shoulder of the mountain, and in full sight of the little level area, I was positive that I saw a slight movement among some bushes at my right, about halfway along one side of the little plain. As we came abreast of the spot upon which I kept my eye, there broke upon our ears the most hideous scream that I have ever heard, and simultaneously there leaped from the concealment of the bushes a creature about the size of a North American mountain lion, though quite evidently a reptile, and probably a torho, as such it proved to be. There was something about the head and face which suggested the cat family to me, yet there was really no resemblance between it and any of the earthly felines. It came at me with those terrible curved fangs bared and bristling, and as it came it emitted the most terrifying sounds. I have called them screams because that word more nearly describes them than any other, and yet they were a combination of shrieks and moans, the most blood-curdling that I have ever heard. Naila grasped my arm. Run! she cried. Run! But I shook her loose and stood my ground. I wanted to run, that I will admit, but where to? The creature was covering the ground at tremendous speed, and our only avenue of escape was the narrow trail over which we had just come, when the Torho was upon me. Then I swung for its head as a batter swings for a pitched ball. I struck it square upon the nose, a terrific blow that not only stopped it, but felled it. I could hear the bones crushing beneath the impact of my crude weapon, and I thought that I had done for the thing with that single blow, but I did not know the tremendous vitality of the creature. Almost instantly it was up and at me again, and again I struck it, this time upon the side of the head, and again I heard bones crush, and again it fell heavily to the ground. What appeared to be cold blood was oozing slowly from its wounded face as it came at me for the third time, its eyes glaring hideously, its broken jaws agape to seize me, while its shrieks and moans rose to a perfect frenzy of rage and pain. It reared up and struck at me with its talons now, but I met it again with my bludgeon 
and this time I broke a foreleg. How long I fought that awful thing I cannot even guess. Time and time again it charged me furiously, and each time, though often by but a miracle of fortune, I managed to keep it from closing, and each blow that I delivered crushed and maimed it a little more, until at last it was nothing but a bleeding wreck of pulp, still trying to crawl toward me upon its broken legs, and seize me and drag me down with its broken toothless jaws. Even then, it was with the greatest difficulty that I killed it, that I might put it out of its misery. Rather exhausted, I turned to look for Noila, and much to my surprise, I found her standing directly behind me. I thought you would run away, I said. No, she said, you did not run, and so I did not, but I never thought that you would be able to kill it. You thought that it would kill me then? I asked. Certainly, she replied. Even now I cannot understand how you were able to overcome it or hoe with that pitiful little stick of wood. But if you thought I was going to be killed, I insisted, why was it that you did not seek safety in flight? If you had been killed, I should not have cared to live, she said simply. I did not exactly understand her attitude, and scarcely knew what reply to make. It was very foolish of you, I said at last, rather blunderingly, and if we are attacked again, you must run and save yourself. She looked at me for a moment, with a peculiar expression upon her face which I could not interpret, and then turned and resumed her way in the direction in which we had been travelling when our journey had been interrupted by the Torho. She did not say anything, but I felt that I had offended her, and I was sorry. I did not want her falling in love with me, though, and according to earthly standards, her statement that she would rather die than live without me might naturally have been interpreted as a confession of love. The more I thought of it, however, as we moved along in silence, the more possible it seemed to me that her standards might differ widely from mine, and that I was only proving myself to be an egotistical ass in assuming that Naila loved me. I wished that I might explain matters to her, but it is one of those things that is rather difficult to explain, and I realized that it might be made much worse if I attempted to do so. We had been such good friends, and our fellowship had been so perfect that the apparently strained silence which existed between us was most depressing. Naila had always been a talkative little person, and always gay and cheerful even under the most trying conditions. I was rather tired out after my encounter with the Torho, and should have liked to stop for a rest, but I did not suggest it, neither did Naila, and so we continued on our seemingly interminable way, though, almost exhausted as I was, I dropped some little distance behind my beautiful guide. She was quite out of sight ahead of me upon the winding trail, when suddenly I heard her calling my name aloud. I answered her as simultaneously I broke into a run, for I did not know but what she might be in danger, though her voice did not sound at all like it. She was only a short distance ahead, and when I came in sight of her I saw her standing at the edge of a mighty crater. She was facing me, and she was smiling. Oh, Julian, she cried, I have found it. I am home, and we are safe at last. I am glad, Naila, I said. I have been much worried on account of the dangers to which you have been constantly subjected, 
as well as because of a growing fear that you would never be able to find lathe oh my she exclaimed i knew that i would find it if i had to hunt through every mountain range in vana i would have found it you are quite sure that this is the crater where lies the entrance to lathe i asked her there is no doubt of it julian she replied and she pointed downward over the lip of the crater toward a narrow ledge which lay some twenty feet below and upon which i saw what appeared to be the mouth of a cave opening into the crater but how are we going to reach it i asked it may be difficult she replied but we will find a way i hope so nyla i said but without a rope or wings i do not see how we are going to accomplish it in the mouth of the tunnel explained nyla there are long poles each of which has a hook at one end ages ago there were no other means of ingress or egress to the city and those who came out to hunt or for any other purpose came through this long tunnel from the city and from the ledge below they raised their poles and placed the hooked ends over the rim of the crater after which it was a simple matter to clamber up or down the poles as they wished but it has been long since these tunnels were used by the people of vana who had no further need of them after the perfection of the flying wings which you saw me using when i was captured by the vagas if they use poles so may we i said since there are plenty of young trees growing close to the rim of the crater the only difficulty will be in felling one of them we can do that said nyla if we can find some sharp fragments of stone it will be slow work but it can be done and she started immediately to hunt for a fragment with a cutting edge i joined her in the search and it was not long before we had discovered several pieces of obsidian with rather sharp edges we then started to work upon a young tree about four inches in diameter that grew almost straight for a height of some thirty feet cutting the tree down with our bits of lava glass was tedious work but finally it was accomplished and we were both much elated when the tree toppled and fell to the ground cutting away the branches occupied almost as long a time but that too was finally accomplished the next problem which confronted us was that of making the top of the pole secure enough to hold while we descended to the ledge before the mouth of the tunnel we had no rope and nothing with which to fashion one other than my garments which i was loath to destroy inasmuch as in these higher altitudes it was often cold presently however i hit upon a plan which if naila's muscles and my nerves withstood the strain it might put upon them bade fair to assure the success of our undertaking I lowered the larger end of the pole over the side of the crater until the butt rested upon the ledge before the mouth of the tunnel. Then I turned to Naila. Lie down flat at full length, Naila, I directed her, and hold this pole securely with both hands. You will only have to keep it from toppling to the sides or outward, and to that I think your strength is equal. While you hold it, I will descend to the mouth of the tunnel and raise one of the regular hooked poles which you say should be deposited there if they are not i believe that i can hold our own pole securely from below while you descend she looked over into the vast abyss below and shuddered i can hold it at the top she said if the bottom does not slip from the ledge that is a chance that i shall have to take i replied but i will descend very carefully 
and I think there will be little danger upon that score. I could see upon a more careful examination of the ledge below that there was some danger of an accident such as she suggested. Nyla took her position, as I had directed, and lay grasping the pole securely in both hands at the rim of the crater, which was absolutely perpendicular at this point, and I prepared to make the perilous descent. I can assure you that my sensations were far from pleasurable as I looked over into that awful abyss. The crater itself was some four or five miles in diameter, and, as I had every reason to suspect, extended fully two hundred and fifty miles through the lunar crust to the surface of the moon. It was one of the most impressive moments of my life as I clung balancing upon the edge of that huge orifice, gazing into the silent, mysterious depths below. And then I seized the pole very gently and lowered myself over the edge. "'Courage, Julian,' whispered Naila. "'I shall hold very tight.' "'I shall be quite safe, Naila. I assured her. "'I must be safe, for if I am not, "'how are you to reach the ledge and lathe?' "'As I descended very slowly, "'I tried not to think at all, "'but to exclude from my mind "'every consideration of the appalling depths beneath me. "'I could not have been more than two feet from the ledge,' when the very thing that we both tried so hard to guard against transpired. A splintered fragment of the pole's butt crumpled beneath my weight, and that slight jar was just sufficient to start the base of my precarious ladder sliding toward the edge of the narrow projection upon which I had rested it, and beyond which lay eternity. Above me I heard a slight scream, and then the pole slipped from the edge, and I felt myself falling. It was over in an instant. My feet struck the ledge, and I threw myself within the mouth of the tunnel. And then, above me, I heard Nyla's voice crying in agonized tones, Julian! Julian! I am falling! Instantly I sprang to my feet and peered upward from the mouth of the tunnel upon a sight that froze my blood, so horrifying did it seem. For there, above me, still clinging to the pole, hung Nyla, her body, with the exception of her legs, completely over the edge of the crater. Just as I looked up, she dropped the pole, and although I made a grab for it, I missed it, and it fell past me into the maw of the crater. Julian, Julian, you are safe, she cried. I am glad of that. It terrified me so when I thought you were falling, and I tried my best to hold the pole, but your weight dragged me over the edge of the crater. Goodbye, Julian. I cannot hold on much longer. You must, Naila, I cried. Do not forget the hooked poles that you told me of. I will find one and have you down in no time. And even as I spoke, I turned and dove into the tunnel. But my heart stood still at the thought that the poles might not be there. My first glance revealed only the bare rock of walls and floor and ceiling, and no hooked poles in sight. I sprang quickly farther into the tunnel, which turned abruptly a few yards ahead of me, and just around the bend my eyes were gladdened by the sight of a dozen or more of the poles which Naila had described. Seizing one of them, I ran quickly back to the entrance. I was almost afraid to look up, but as I did so I was rewarded by the sight of Naila's face smiling down at me. She could smile, even in the face of death, could Naila. Just a moment more, Naila, I cried to her, as I raised the pole and caught the hook upon the crater's rim. There were small protuberances on either side of the pole for its entire length, 
which made climbing it comparatively simple. Make haste, Julian, she cried. I am slipping. It wasn't necessary for her to tell me to make haste. I think that I never did anything more quickly in my life than I climbed that pole. But I reached her not an instant too soon, for even as my arm slipped about her, her hold upon the ledge above gave way, and she came down head foremost upon me. I had no difficulty in catching her and supporting her weight. My only fear was that the hook above might not sustain the added weight under the strain of her falling body. But it held, and I blessed the artisan who had made it thus strong. A moment later I descended to the mouth of the tunnel and drawn Naila into the safety of its interior. My arm was still around her, and hers about me, as she stood there sobbing upon my breast. She was utterly relaxed, and her supple body felt so helpless against me that there was suddenly aroused within me a feeling such as I had never experienced before, a rather indescribable feeling, yet one which induced seemingly an irresistible and ridiculous desire to go forth and slay whole armies of men in protection of this little moon-maid. It must have been a sudden mental reversion to some ancient type of crusading ancestor of the Middle Ages, some knight in armor from whose loins I had sprung, transmitting to me his own flamboyant yet none the less admirable chivalry. The feeling rather surprised me, for I have always considered myself more or less practical and hard-headed. But more sober thought finally convinced me that it was but a nervous reaction from the thrilling moments through which we had both just passed, coupled with her entire helplessness and dependence upon me. Be that as it may, I disengaged her arms from about my neck as gently and as quickly as I could, and lowered her carefully to the floor of the tunnel, so that she sat with her back leaning against one of the walls. You are very brave, Julian, she said, and very strong. I am afraid I am not very brave, I told her. I am almost weak from fright even now. I was so afraid that I would not reach you in time, Naila. It is the brave man who is afraid after the danger is past, she said. He has no time to think of fear until after the happening is all over. You may have been afraid for me, Julian, but you could not have been afraid for yourself, for otherwise you would not have taken the risk of catching me as I fell. Even now I cannot understand how you were able to hold me. Perhaps, I reminded her, I am stronger than the men of Vana for my earthly muscles are accustomed to overcoming a gravity six times as great as that upon your world. Had the same accident happened upon earth, I might not have been able to hold you when you fell. End of chapter 8 Recording by Thomas Cope